0: So today I'm joined by Carly Robinson, who is a postdoctoral research associate at the Annenberg Institute at Brown University. Her research interests sit at the intersection of education, psychology, and policy. In particular, she draws on insights from social psychology and behavioral science to design and experimentally test interventions that improve social support for students. She has explored how to strengthen teacher-student relationships and mobilize effective family engagement. Prior to completing her PhD at Harvard's Graduate School of Education, Carly was a teacher in New York City. I'm also joined by Hunter Gelbach, who is a professor and vice dean at the Johns Hopkins School of Education, as well as the director of research at Panorama Education. An educational psychologist by training and a social psychologist at heart, his interests lie in improving the social and motivational context of schools. Much of his recent focus has shifted towards investigating how social psychological approaches might improve environmental education. He has a methodological interest in helping social scientists improve their questionnaire design processes. And prior to his career in academia, Hunter taught high school social studies. Finally, as a complement to their applied research, Hunter and Carly's methodological work emphasizes open science practices, such as pre-registering hypothesis testing studies. And today we'll be discussing their article entitled, From Old School to Open Science, the Implications of New Research Norms for Educational Psychology and Beyond, which served as the introductory article of the special issue of Educational Psychologists that they guest edited on the role of educational psychology in the open science era. That special issue can be found in Issue 2 of Volume 56 in the year 2021, and Hunter and Carly, thanks so much for joining me today.
1: Thanks for having us, Jeff.
0: Great to be here, Jeff. Thank you. So let's start here. What is open science? That's a great question. So
2: I think the way we got into it, or at least I got into it at first, was beginning with this idea of pre-registration. And so with a pre-registered study, what you do that's different than a regular study, perhaps, is to explicitly state the hypotheses you're going to test, the stuff that really counts, the thing you're really interested in in any given study. And you state that publicly on a website and you ideally add the exact way you're going to test those hypotheses. And then that guarantees that when you write the article up, you're going to address exactly those hypotheses in exactly the way you said. And this idea of pre-registration, I, I got pretty interested in and a study that i did i guess back in about we were probably conducting the research in about 2014-2015 led to some really interesting findings and i had just kind of read about pre-registration at that point so we actually pre-registered a couple of these hypotheses found some really neat results and the thing that was fun about it is I felt afterwards like I, I could have a, a good bit more faith in these results because they were not exploratory. We had etched in stone, if you will, exactly what we were gonna do, and then we did exactly that. And it didn't tie our hands, right? We also added some exploratory findings in. And so it was that initial episode of pre-registering. It kind of opened up this whole world of not just pre-registration, but a whole series of other practices. And so I think the unifying theme to what open science is, is opening up the process of doing science so that it is transparent for other researchers in particular who are interested in exactly what you did, but as well as for the broader community, the lay public uh, wanting to know exactly what you did. So... To me, the, the key thing of open science is opening up the access and accessibility and transparency of everything that you're doing. I'm not sure if Carly would, would add more to that rough definition.
1: No, I think that's right. At the very core, open science research practices really are a tool to increase transparency and I think ultimately the rigor of research. And that's how I've been thinking about it as I've learned more about what open science actually is.
0: So transparency and rigor sound like good things to me. Why should we care about this? Why should researchers care about open science? What does open science get us that maybe we haven't been doing as well previously?
1: So in our introductory article, we try to lay out the basic problem open science aims to solve, which is really to reduce ambiguity in the research process and the likelihood that researchers can find and publish illusory results or results that seem meaningful or are statistically significant, but actually have been found by statistical chance. And lots of people have written about this, but there are a number of long-standing research practices that can make it more likely you'll end up with a quote-unquote meaningful result. In the special issue, we refer to these as old school research practices. And I was trained in my undergraduate courses to do basically every single one of them. Remove outliers, thoroughly analyze my data, don't miss anything prioritize new and exciting findings, try to explain findings with theory. None of these at face value are bad, but can increase the likelihood you find illusory results. Um, And one thing we try to do in our article, and admittedly it's a bit speculative, is to offer a sense of how some of the old school practices can cause problematic cycles within research. At the same time, we also hypothesize how open science practices could really cause beneficial synergies between researchers' goals and the needs for practitioners and policymakers. And we created two parallel figures in our article that present these ideas. So, on one hand, we outline how old school research practices have led to unrealistic peer review expectations, which increases the pressure for scholars to produce illusory results if they want to get published, which can lead to publication bias. Um, and of course, if the results were found by chance and aren't actually real, They won't replicate in practice, and they really aren't much use for practitioners and policymakers. In a second figure, we then show how open science research practices actually create incentives for credible results, which minimize publication bias. And this results in practitioners and policymakers having a better sense of what works and what does not, and might increase their appetite for using educational research. So we hope that our article sort of lays out why we might need open science. And we think the other articles in the special issue do a great job of that. And we hope that the figures we provide give some framework for educational psychologists and educational researchers to consider why and how they might adopt open science practices.
0: And I think those figures are really, really helpful. And I like how you've talked about old school practices, because those are practices that I was trained in and practices that I've used. And sure, there are some people out there, I'm sure, who maybe use these practices in an intentionally misrepresentative way. They're they're trying to hide something, or they know they're digging to find something so they get it published. But I think the vast majority of researchers are honestly inquiring their data, trying to understand it, trying to present something that they feel is accurate and representative. and, And Carly, as you said, that they don't miss anything. But what your article discusses and those figures show, and then what other research has shown, is that you keep making these little decisions that take you down this path of ending up with a result that no one's ever going to find again. It was, it's just, it's, it's not going to replicate. And that does lead to, and again, you, you describe this really well. It leads to not only a, an individual finding that is unlikely to replicate because it's probably illusory, but it also creates this perception that the only things worth publishing in the world are these novel, super cool you know, super fancy findings when that's not how most science works and it it gives everyone a weird set of incentives to find the coolest, most novel finding. I think your figure illustrate that really well. Are there other old school practices that uh, maybe researchers should be thinking twice about? Jeff, I, I think you
2: just really nailed it. And I think one of the things that to me is really important to underscore, which you said and Carly said, and I'll say it too, Is, you know, we've all used these old school practices. I think almost all of us were trained in exactly this way. And the line is really blurry between thoroughly analyzing your data, which I think every single one of us would agree is a really important thing to do, and torturing your data until it tells you exactly what you want to hear, which I think all of us would agree is a terrible thing to do. But like Mm -hmm. where that line is, is really unclear. And so something like pre-registration helps really, I, I think, kind of clarify and make very definitive where that line is between things that you actually did predict in a, an a priori kind of sense and things that you kind of thought about as you were going along and started looking at your data and analyzing it further. And I'm just going to, if I can, mention one of the articles that I think does such a a great job of this. Mm -hmm. And one of our authors, Justin Reich, talks about this process and the difference between this sort of prediction piece and the post-talk once you've looked at your data. And when he says this opening line, which I'll I'll say in a sec, I, I feel like it's a little like crossing over the Rubicon for Caesar. Like, once you've looked at that data, there's no going back. Nothing you do anymore is is really an honest prediction. And so he opens his article with, when educational psychologists first begin to analyze data from a study, they cross an important threshold in the research process. Before that moment, hypotheses are predictions. Positionality is shaped by prior work rather than new findings and data analytic decisions are made without knowledge of exactly how those decisions will affect the possible set of findings to present to a public audience. Once the data analysis begins, research decisions have different kinds of consequences. After looking at one's own data, subsequently developed hypotheses are no longer predictions. Mm-hmm. So, just one illustration, I think, of, of some of the good stuff that's in the articles that help sort of illustrate why a practice like pre-registration is so important. And, and pre-registration is really a technique or a strategy designed to address the sort of garden of forking paths idea, which is where you start looking at your data and you make a decision and then that leads you to another decision that is informed by what you found. So, that's certainly an old school practice using my data to sort of understand what I want to analyze next that I've done a lot of. I think other old school practices, certainly that I've done a lot of, covariates. So I think it's always a sensible idea to think about, you know, if you control for these certain things, maybe that's a really important thing to take into account to see if, say, an intervention works. So I think that's another common one. I, I think the thing with all these old school practices is they're smart, they're useful, but it's when you combine them and and don't sort of state the rules at the top that they can get us all into trouble thinking that we've found things that we haven't really found and the illusory results that we've been talking about. I think looking around at covariates and maybe trying out different ways of measuring composite variables mm-hmm. are a couple mm-hmm. Of some of these old school practices that i i certainly acknowledge now that i have used a lot in the past and have enjoyed trying to get better about just being really explicit and transparent about when i'm using them when i'm making predictions and when i'm doing exploratory analyses Mm -hmm. Uh, i don't know if carly would add anything to that list but uh, those are probably my my top two
1: Yeah. And I think that actually there's probably a lot of old school practices that we don't even know are old school right now. And that's what's really, I think, interesting and exciting about sort of this frontier because it's really being developed in the moment. But for instance, I really hadn't given much thought about, you know, the openness of my data or my materials or my measures as much until reading the article on open access and data led by Jesse Fleming um, and his colleagues. And mm-hmm. it just is one of those things that opens your eyes and you're like, oh, I wasn't doing that. And now I'm going to start to design my research. So I am taking those things into consideration and I think that's really one of the goals of the special issue is first order that exposure so people actually know what these practices are and can start to think about how they might apply to them in their own contexts.
0: And that's really helpful. And I'm I'm glad that both of you have mentioned the other articles in the special issue because they're all really helpful. And there, there's a lot of how-tos. There's a lot of, okay, maybe you're new to posting data online in a repository, or maybe you're new to replications, or maybe you're new to thinking through measurement really deeply, here's some how to's, here's some ways to start thinking about it. And so I think the special issue as a whole really does that really well. And I know that there are some people that I talk to who think open science is really just posting all of your data online and they have this visceral kind of, I would never do that type reaction. When in fact, what you outline is that open science is a broader set of practices that People can pick and choose from, right? Depending upon their circumstances and the nature of the data, it's not only quantitative analysis that applies here. You know, there's open science and qualitative and mixed too, and there's lots of different ways you can do it, but you can kind of pick and choose the practices that fit for your context, but in aggregate, when all of us start doing open science practices, the science gets better. And Hunter, you mentioned how there's this Rubicon and once you cross the Rubicon, things are different. I think it'd be fair, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's fair to say that it's not a bad thing to cross the Rubicon. You just need to tell people you did it. You, You need to put in the article, okay, I just crossed the Rubicon. These are super exploratory. You know, we need to try this again. We need to, you know, really do a couple more studies before we're confident this is a thing, but here's this exploratory finding that's really interesting and that's worth investigating. There's nothing wrong with that, in my opinion. We just need to be really clear about it. Is that fair? That's exactly right, Jeff. And I think I would
2: would maybe even add a, a layer of nuance on that, which is one of the practices Carly and I have gotten into in our own work is having two results sections so there's one mm-hmm. result section for here are our pre-specified hypotheses we said we were going to look at x and here's x and we said we were going to look at y and we said how we were going to look at y and here's Y. and then part two of the results section here's our exploratory analyses once we actually saw the data and realized you know that these things happened then it made sense to ask these other new questions mm-hmm. and so the layer of nuance that I would add, though, is that I think how you do the pre-registration matters. And so I alluded earlier to this research project, which was a project about similarity in teacher-student relationships. And so if we could help teachers and students feel like they had stuff in common and just sort of tilt their perceptions toward, oh, wow, we actually have these things in common, the thought was it would make a big difference for their actual relationship. So we had this similarity intervention. We listed out six pre-specified hypotheses. Three of them, we sort of found what we were looking for. Three did not. But then the thing that was the kicker, and we did a good job of this in the paper, we distinguished the pre-specified hypotheses from the exploratory. But because I was so new to this, And because there was so much other social psychological literature to suggest that the big, fun headline take-home finding, which was just happening for a subgroup of students, not a subgroup we had predicted ahead of time, so this exploratory finding was the one that was really exciting where the achievement gap closed, you know, I, I sort of believed my own finding that was exploratory much more than I should have. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like there are a lot of us out there who probably have these hard earned lessons where they they kind of know something in the back of their heads, but it's not until they really experience it that Mm -hmm. the lesson is driven home. And so Mm -hmm. it was that study, I think, that got Carly sort of interested in working with me when she went off to grad school And then, and I still feel guilty over this, right? She comes in and we try and replicate this thing like seven or eight times in a row. And every single time it's these really disappointing results. And so anyway, the the level of nuance I would add is just that not only do you have to not limit yourself and, and keep remembering, yes, you can still do these exploratory findings. You just have to, clarify which is which. So that was sort of your point. And then the additional point I would make is, and you have to view the credibility of those exploratory versus pre-specified findings. Mm -hmm. You have to view the credibility very differently. And that's, that's Mm -hmm. very much my personal takeaway. Mm -hmm. So I don't, Carly, would you add anything to that? Our little saga there?
1: I think uh, the moral of the story is that you hoodwinked me (laughs) <laughs> but um no, I think that's I think that's exactly right. You know, you learn a lot after many failed attempts at replication in many different contexts. And I think that that trial and error really highlighted for us how, how helpful preregistration can be and how to do it correctly. And mm-hmm. it's good that we got there, but knowing that earlier would have saved a ton of time and effort on both of our ends. And so Thinking about what we can do going forward, can we help make the process easier for others and ourselves? Now that we know what a pre-registration should look like and know more about many of these open science practices, we are just increasing the likelihood that if we find a real result, our studies are going to replicate. And I think it's just improved the quality of our research overall.
0: I agree. And and Carly, if I remember correctly, one of those failed replications, you pre-registered and then got it published, right?
1: Yeah. So in that process of, you know, probably six, seven, eight different replication attempts, by the end we got pretty good at it. And we had, you know, this tight study design and we actually submit the study as a registered report Mm -hmm. to a special issue of ARA Open that was accepting registered reports. And we were actually able to publish our null findings, which I think is really important because at that point, the only information out there on the intervention was that it worked from that first study that Hunter and his team published. And so we were able to both set the record straight a little bit, And also share some really interesting exploratory findings that we learned. So I think it's a really good example of how you can use some of these open science tools like registered reports and pre-registration to uh, combat publication bias and also use that exploratory results section to share some really interesting hypothesis generating findings for future research.
0: Yeah, that's great. And I I totally agree. Sometimes, you know, if you've done the study really well, it's designed really well, and it's a registered report, sometimes no finding is a finding. I mean, that's important to get out into the literature. And I like how you distinguish the more exploratory studies that may follow. And the idea of kind of two results sections is really interesting to me. I'm tempted to have one result section in Times New Roman font and then the exploratory one in, like, Comic Sans to really (laughs) illustrate, like, it's exploratory. We're not sure. But uh, you touched upon something that open science is trying to address, and it's this issue of illusory results, this idea that, you know, if we are in the best of intentions, walking down this garden of forking paths, that we make these seemingly innocent decisions that lead us to get to results that are improbable and unlikely to replicate, then we have this literature base that's full of these things, and we don't really have a good sense of what's going on, and open science helps us address that. I guess a question a, a lot of listeners may have right now is, how big a problem do we think illusory results are in educational psychology, and how do we find out?
2: That's an excellent question and one that a number of the reviewers, both on our introductory piece and, and several other pieces, have asked. And there are a couple answers, probably none of them perfectly satisfying. So one is, let's look at some related disciplines. So if you look at medicine and psychology, where a lot of the open science movement kind of took off from, and by psychology, I I think I mean disproportionately social psychology. There were some really big influential articles that kind of established either through sort of mathematical modeling or in psychology through essentially a, a faux study that looked and felt like many, many studies in social psychology. So those attracted the attention of a lot of people in those fields to sort of provide illustrations of how big a problem it is without actually necessarily sort of exactly quantifying. In educational psychology, I think there's been some really interesting work on looking at things like meta-analysis. You know, the sample size and the number of people in the study should be completely uncorrelated. That shouldn't matter. But mm-hmm. if we're worried that illusory results are maybe happening, then ah, gosh, you know it's actually easier to find a big effect if it is somewhat illusory. If you've got a small sample size, and lo and behold, uh, some researchers have looked at the correlation between effect size and sample size and found indeed smaller samples tend to produce bigger effect sizes. So that's like one little hint, mm-hmm. actually. Two of the authors in the special issue, Matt Makel and Jonathan Plucker, have just, and unfortunately it's only just come out, so it's, it's not referenced in the special issue. I think it might even still be in press as we're speaking, but they have just had an article come out or about to come out in Educational Researcher that documents and talks about, they've done a survey of questionable research practices. And so we'll get some good information there about how various researchers who are surveyed in education, so maybe a little more broadly than educational psychology, I think was their population. Um, But we'll get a little sense from that also about how prevalent these practices are. But honestly, I think the big thing that we need to do is we've got to test it both ways, right? Mm-hmm. So, for the most part, we have a rich database of research that was conducted sort of according to old school norms. And, you know, we learned lots of great things, and many of those findings are going to be completely legitimate and borne out over a number of replications, but some probably won't be. And we don't know which is which. So if we can now layer in some of these open science practices, we'll get more of a comparison because we'll have examples done under sort of the old school regime and examples done under the open science norms. And I think that's really what we need to find out more conclusively sort of exactly not only how prevalent these illusory results are but you know what's what's kind of the downstream consequences for example for theory Mm -hmm. do we have some theories that actually don't have any empirical evidence underneath them at all Mm -hmm. i think that's a question i'm really curious to see how that unfolds over the the next few years
0: so it does sound to me like there's been a lot of good work done to begin investigating the prominence or prevalence, as you said, of illusory results in education, but there's certainly more work to do. And I would be really interested in seeing additional work into how much of an issue this is for education or educational psychology. But regardless, what I'm hearing is open science is good science. And the things that are explained and advocated for in the special issue are things that everyone should be considering because it'll make our work better. Is that a a fair characterization?
1: I think that's exactly right and I think that idea really served as motivation for this special issue. You know, I think it's worth noting that I consider myself pretty lucky to have been exposed to some of these open science ideas early on in my academic research trajectory. You know, I worked with a couple of faculty members including Hunter who were just starting to incorporate these practices into their research program. But this came through extracurricular projects. They were certainly not a part of my prescribed graduate training at the time. So You know, that sets up the potential for an equity issue. Different researchers are being trained in different ways and have different exposure to these practices and arguably are even playing by a different set of rules. You know, just personally, I've received peer reviews on manuscripts from scholars who are clearly not on the same page when it comes to how much they value, whether a study is, for instance, pre-registered or not. And then I think that we also, as we think about, you know, how prevalent these practices are and how we're going to deal with them, as educational psychologists, we watch from the sidelines as the harsh debate over these norms played out in social psychology. And I think Hunter and I really hope that there might be some opportunity to avoid that backlash in education by trying to get ahead of the fallout by starting with a more constructive conversation. Mm-hmm. And educational psychology in particular has such rich methodological diversity. So there's a real opportunity for educational psychologists to both translate some of these best practices from psychology's shift to adopting these open science norms, I think, while also making really important contributions about what it would have to look like for it to work for the very diverse methods that comprise educational research. You know, if we really expect things like pre-registration and replication and open data to be adopted by educational researchers, we need to recognize the very complex and messy realities of conducting applied research. And so I think all of those things together, along with this idea that we should start documenting how much open science practices matter, really contribute to the goals of the special issue. And Jeff, when you proposed the idea of the special issue on open science for the journal Educational Psychologists, we saw an opportunity to proactively start to address some of these issues.
0: And you've made some great points about how it is an opportunity for us as a field, education research, educational psychology, to get ahead of what could be a real reckoning. I mean, maybe all of our results are super solid, and there's nothing illusory about what we're doing. But my guess is there's probably some things that could use some tightening up. Let's get ahead of that now. Let's investigate it now. But you've also made really important points about the context-specific nature of education research, about applied research, about the diversity of methods. And I was grateful to see in the special issue that authors talk about that. They talk about some of the challenges and some of the things that will be difficult to figure out. You know, we can't just adopt medicine's open science practices or, or even social psychology's open science practices wholesale. We've got to be thoughtful and apply them to our particular field. So are there other challenges that you anticipate And when people begin investigating open science for the research that they're doing?
2: I think there's a huge... I mean, as as much as we are trying to use this special issue, as Carly said, to open up a conversation that is amicable and thoughtful and, and really make it a two-way street. I think educational psychologists have a lot to learn from some of the open science practices. But I think because of the methodological diversity, educational psychologists will probably contribute a lot to the open science debate. Despite all that, though, there's certainly going to be resistance, right? And I appreciate that, right? Science is by nature a very skeptical endeavor. Uh, I think everyone is, is guilty until you really prove that some new phenomena exists or, or a theory really works in the way you think it does. Mm-hmm. And so in that same vein, sort of running parallel is a sense that you know, scientific approaches and processes have been developed very thoughtfully and slowly over time. And if we're coming along and saying, yeah, you know, it's it's gone well for a while, but there's these big problems and here are a set of new practices we really need to think hard about and embrace. You know, that's a message that some people will say, okay, yep, I'm I'm ready to listen to that and entertain it. And other people will say, I don't know, like, you got to show me some proof before I'm willing to change my ways. And I think especially because if we're honest, you know, I think some of these practices do take a little bit more work. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the Fleming et al piece on open practices, right? It takes time to curate a data set in just the way that provides confidentiality and, and all those things and makes it Make sense to other researchers, that's time and effort to curate that data set in such a way that you can put it up and post it and make it publicly available. Mm-hmm. Same thing for any methods and materials you might have used. Mm-hmm. It takes less time, but it's still a little bit of extra time to post a preprint of your article before it comes out and so that it's not behind a paywall. And so There's going to be skepticism. There already is. We've seen it in the reviews of some of the articles, but I think that's really healthy. And I think the give and take and back and forth, as long as people kind of remain open minded about these practices, is going to help educational psychology, I think, really be a leader in developing these open science practices and norms, both sort of as they need to get tailored for educational psychology and the out in the field aspect of our work, we do a lot of work with big data sets. I think that's kind of a new area for innovation in open science as well. So I think this open-minded conversation that I think both Carly and I aspire that the field will have about open science, I think that's going to do a lot both for the practice of educational psychology research, but also for the norms that open science begins to adopt. And you know, maybe there are some really good ways to pre-register uh, design-based research or you know, qualitative studies, I, I think we got to try it and, and figure out kind of what works and what doesn't.
1: And I would just add that I think that we need to also be realistic about the problems that open science can and can't solve. Mm-hmm. So if we're trying to increase transparency in the research process, yeah, I think that a lot of the practices that the authors and the special issue bring up do just that. But Open science can't solve issues like a bad research design or the fact that practitioners and policymakers aren't going to care about esoteric research if it doesn't apply to them. And so really making sure that the conversation is about what are the benefits and drawbacks to implementing these practices in educational research will be important for uh, moving it forward. And also understanding that I think we're still in a bit of a trial and error stage. And so I think that maybe we're going to be testing some things out that don't work, and that's okay Mm -hmm. as we develop what become the best practices for research.
0: Yeah, I I totally agree. So I think it's easy as a researcher, to maybe a little defensive when you hear your techniques described as maybe old school, or there could be better ways of doing it. And I think we have to keep our mind focused on, it's about the work and it's about improving the work. And I I do think that in addition, there's probably a lot that education research and educational psychology research can contribute to the open science movement. So, you know, you've already talked about applied research and the challenges there and what we can do. I know that the article that Jessica Flake wrote in the special issue talks about education research's focus upon measurement. And there's some things that our colleagues in other subdisciplines of psychology or beyond could maybe learn from when it comes to measurement. And then likewise, I'll, I'll just editorialize, I've always been impressed with the uh, ways in which qualitative research is described, the authenticity, the um, member checking, the thick description, the discipline subjectivity. I think all of those things are inherently about transparency. And there's probably a lot that quantitative researchers in any field could learn from what qualitative researchers have been doing in their studies for years. So I can understand how people would be trepidatious about it. But I do think it's, it's really exciting. There's a lot to learn. And if you keep thinking about the work, I think the work will get better and we don't have to maybe take such a personal view on it. And you've mentioned numerous times that you got some interesting responses from some reviewers. You know, that's, again, to be expected. A piece that I wanted you to talk about for just a minute, though, was your review process involving early career scholars, because I thought this was really innovative and exciting. Can you say a little bit about that?
1: Yeah. One thing that we really hope this special issue will be used for is to serve almost as a handbook for open science research practices for graduate students and early career scholars. So with that goal in mind, we wanted to make sure that the articles were accessible to this audience. So to that end, in addition to the standard peer review process, we also added in this junior scholar review process, as you mentioned, Jeff. And basically, we recruited graduate students, and early career scholars to serve as an additional layer of reviewers. And we asked for their general feedback on each piece, but also noted that we were really interested in places where they weren't following the argument or came across terms that they didn't know and weren't defined. And so we really hoped it would be a good check on experts in subfields who become increasingly used to talking to their colleagues as they wrote for maybe a broader audience that is just learning about some of these practices. So I think that I personally, and I think Hunter agrees, thought the process was a big success because in addition to providing an introduction into how the peer review process works for the next generation of scholars, we also found these reviews brought up really great insights that nudged authors to clarify their writing and their points for maybe less technical audiences. Mm-hmm. And it's something that, you know, I'm thinking about doing going forward, having younger scholars read over my articles and have them point out the places where it's it's not clear what's happening to someone who might not be as familiar with the field.
2: Yeah, I would even say that at the risk of overgeneralizing from our modest sample that, you know, this is something worth thinking about for different journals, because by having these sort of naive reviews, you get to see, I think, with more clarity how your article is landing on the next generation of scholars. And if you're interested in that as your audience, and I think for every paper I write, I, I certainly am, you get some really good feedback about what's making sense, what's not. And I do worry that sometimes a peer review process gets so narrowly funneled into the super top expert in that field, and then you do end up in almost a little bit of an echo chamber where it's only the experts talking to each other and evaluating what's new enough and novel enough to be important. So i i thought this process was great and be kind of neat if other people gave it a try and see what they thought.
0: I agree. I thought it was really valuable and i i took a glance at some of those reviews and i thought they were very thoughtful and often had great suggestions for how ideas could be more clearly communicated or elaborated upon in productive ways. So i thought that was great. So Just before we wrap up here, can you give our listeners a sense of the kinds of topics that are addressed in the special issue? Sure. I I think,
2: at least conceptually, we thought about the special issue in in sort of two parts. And I I think most readers will sort of see this. And so in the first part, the big question is, what is open science? If you are unfamiliar with some of the actual practices and, and terminology The introductory article that Carly and I wrote is is supposed to provide a bit of a conceptual map and and talk through about how all these practices link together. And then the first few articles focus on some of the particular practices and foci of open science. And so you've got the Jonathan Plucker and Matt Makel piece, which focuses on both replication and reproducibility of results. And a lot of nuance in there that I think is really important. I thought I knew a lot about replication and and have learned so much from reading and rereading their article. Then Justin Reich talks about two really key core practices in the open science set of strategies, one being pre-registration and then a related one being registered reports. Carly talked about that a little bit. This is the registered reports being the practice where you submit an introduction a research question, the hypotheses you have, the analysis you're going to use, and that's it. You stop before the results. You probably haven't even conducted the study yet, and that's what goes out for peer review. So you get peer-reviewed on how good your question is, and reviewers decide, yeah, regardless of what the answer is, I would like to know the answer to this, or eh, I- I'm not sure that's going to be that interesting to readers. And then you go out and conduct the study, And if you conduct it in a high fidelity kind of way and do what you said you were going to do, then you've got this in principle acceptance. And so your paper will just be accepted pretty pro forma. If you have to make some adaptations because, you know, snow days happen out in the real world and teachers get busy lives and don't always follow through on helping you with data collection, then you talk through what amendments to the original game plan you had to make. So... Anyway, that's registered reports. So an article focused on replication, article focused on pre-registration and registered reports. And then the other sort of main one that is a focus for this front half of the special issue talks about openness. And I really like the angle they take on it in terms of, you know, it's an idea that could really democratize science. So if all your measures were open and other people had access to them, that would really help other researchers. If the data set was open to others, that would really help. Preprints, getting access to articles that aren't behind paywalls, which can be really hard if you're not at a research institution that pays lots and lots of money for a well-stocked library. So that's kind of the first half. What is open science and what are the basic practices? And then there's sort of a transition article, David Meller's piece, which is thinking about, huh, so if we've got these new practices that we want to transition to, what would that transition look like? How do you transition to a new set of norms and practices? And Meller presents what I think is just a really neat uh, sort of conceptual map of how that might happen and that takes us then into the second half of the special issue which is a little bit more speculative in terms of okay so if we think about these open science practices and if they start to be taken up what are the implications for measurement i mean educational psychology has a long rich tradition of measurement how do we think about you know getting evidence of validity for our measurement tools if it's almost always kind of context dependent, you know, the measure isn't valid per se. It has evidence of validity for a particular population in a particular context. And most of the time, you're not going to really be able to evaluate that until all your data are in. So then, how do you pre register a study in the first place? So, those kinds of tensions, I think, come out really nicely in Jessica Flake's piece. And then, similarly, as we think about aggregating up research, Erica Patel writes just a great piece on meta-analysis, and gosh, if we've got all these studies that have potentially, you know, a few too many of these old school practices, what does that mean for the aggregation of knowledge? Are we aggregating up biased studies that are going to cancel each other out, or are we just creating more and more bias? And so she kind of tackles that question, I think, in a really thoughtful way. And then the final piece, kind of the capstone, has lots of really neat different facets in it. But the Kathy Wenzel's piece, the piece I kind of find most intriguing is, gosh, what happens to all our theories? So as we think through these open science possibilities and where it works and where it might not work, what does that mean for our theory? And is there a bigger role for theory to play in our preregistrations in some of these practices that are kind of the stable of open science? So that's sort of a quick overview. There's a lot more nuance that I left out. Carly, I don't, anything big that I, I missed in that sort of quick summary?
1: No, that was a great overview. And I think listeners should be excited about reading all the articles and thinking about how they'll apply the new practices to their research, because I have already started to make some changes, which I wasn't necessarily expecting, but it's it's been a lot of fun.
0: Well... That's great. And I want to thank both of you for talking to me today and for all of your hard work guest editing our special issue, which is issue two of volume 56 of Educational Psychologist in the year 2021 on Open Science. Uh, Carly and Hunter, thank you again so much for talking to me today.
1: Thanks, Jeff. It was fun.
2: Really great to be hosted, Jeff. Thank you. And thanks for all your hard work on keeping us in line on the special issue. It
0: <laughs> wasn't hard. Thanks a lot.